0: And now, here's the episode. Glad you guys are here. My name's Aaron. I'm pastor here. Um, do I'm usually the one teaching, not always. But uh, if we haven't met, I would love for you to come say hello to me. I got to usually get to meet people after each service, and I love it. So come say hi. I'll smile at you. I'll remember your name. You'll leave. I'll forget your name. We'll do it again the next week. Eventually, we'll get there. Um, but I would, I, would, I would love to meet you. Okay, um, let's take a minute to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into the message. Oh, King Jesus, would you, would you just make us aware of your presence here, your, your kindness, your love, your power, your mercy to us? I just ask in this moment that every single person would be aware of your love for them. Your profound, beautiful, limitless, sacrificial, unconditional love. If we do nothing else this morning but get a step closer to that truth, then we have done a great thing. God, please make us aware of your love for us. And as we look to your word, God, we hold it in the highest esteem. It's such a great gift to us, your word. Thank you for speaking to us in this way. Um, help us to give the word authority in our lives, to trust its truth, to follow it with our whole hearts. And we ask, Lord, now that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you guys, folks who are online. Good to see you, not see you, but glad you're there. Um, so we started this series last week called Empowered. And here's what we're talking about. We're talking about how just regular old everyday Christians, not like super Christians with their cape flapping in the wind who float around in Shekinah glory, just like regular everyday Christians can be and often are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we do mean empowered in the sense of, you know, sort of the things that happen within us and the things that... You know, the stirrings in our spirit that aren't anything demonstrative. We do mean that. But we also mean like we will have by the power of the spirit the capacity to do things that we're not capable of doing otherwise. (laughs) Like supernatural work of God through just regular old us. And that's a, a bit of an upsetting for some subject. It's a challenging subject for some So we're just acknowledging that and leaning right into it. Uh, Last week, we started in Ephesians chapter 3 as our anchor text. It's our anchor text for today as well. So let me read to you a number of verses, uh, beginning with verse 16 from Ephesians 3. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. So there's an empowerment there. But what we want to highlight there is that it's, it's first and foremost an inner work. When we think of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, we think of outward demonstrations. That's part of it. But first and foremost, it's an inner strength. And it happens through His Spirit. Verse 17, then Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust in Him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide how long, how high, how deep His love is. This is really, this is the fundamental concept. If we are to seek the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, it, it begins with us being supernaturally able to understand, a power to understand just how fantastically and completely and perfectly we are loved by God. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, How wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. Verse 19, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. So now he's talking about an an encounter, an experience with that love. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us. This is a lot to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to Him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. As I said, we're in a series about the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Last week as we studied this text, we laid what honestly I'm pretty convinced just has to be our foundation. Has to be our foundation for this whole conversation. It's about us, first and foremost, accepting God's love us as empowered, and we need even the power to do it, there's something miraculous about this, but that we would be able to understand God's love, to take it in a bit more deeply, just as the text says, just as the text says, it's about us being more and more deeply rooted in God's love, and then even on top of that, an experience, an encounter with the love of God. This is about the love of God first and foremost. And so our first mission is to anchor deeply in that. Um, And then that becomes... Uh, it it becomes our everything. It becomes our lenses for how we see the world and move out into the world. It becomes our mantra, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. On good days, the love of God. On bad days, the love of God. When we're encountering his presence, when we're not encountering his presence. The love of God, the love of God, the love of God. So that was last week. Um, Many of you know uh, and have heard about uh, what was a, a pretty... Phenomenal outpouring of God's presence uh, at the Asbury Theological Seminary. We talked about it a little bit. Uh, It went on for quite some time. Um, And it was a beautiful thing that God uh, did and is still doing there on that campus. It's really cool. And that sort of made the news and it kind of became in our awareness, you know, in a cool way. But what's not known is that, as widely known at least, is that it didn't start in Asbury. Like God had been moving specifically in that particular way. And we'll get to what was unique about it um, and is unique about it. But God had already been doing that in places all around the world and in an increasing fashion. And then it didn't stop when it stopped there at Asbury. It continues on and it continues to increase. And it continues to happen more and more all around the world. People who are genuinely seeking the face of God are increasingly experiencing outpourings of his love. And that's, that's what's interesting. You know, There's been lots of revivals and renewals and outpourings, whatever the language, I don't know what the right language is or what the what correct lingo is, but there's been lots of these throughout church history and typically they're accompanied by what we consider, consider the, the Pentecostal or charismatic gifts of the Spirit that becomes pretty central at least to what's going on. And it's not that that isn't the case in this one, but what is central to what God is doing before Asbury, at Asbury, and since, and in an increasing fashion, is that people are seeking the presence of God, and they are encountering the love of God. And the stories that are being told increasingly are the stories of, I, I am more deeply aware of God's love and delight in me than I have ever been before. There's something about the way God is moving in the world right now that I think is, a, is an answer to Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. That we would have the miraculous capacity to understand and embrace the love of God. And then out of that beautiful and transforming things can happen. And I've, I've heard these, these things are, again, they're happening in an increasing fashion around the world. I've, I've heard them called spot fires. <laughs> and so there's just these spots here and there all over the place. They seem to be increasing. I even think we've gotten some drops of it Here. And what's happening again, more and more, is God is revealing His love to people who are genuinely seeking Him, and that's the promise of this text. Um, at the beginning of the prayer, this is verse sixteen. He asks this is an important language. He asks that we would be empowered from God's glorious, unlimited resources. I want to take a minute and just, just to think about that concept: for us to be empowered through His glorious, unlimited resources—God's resources. God's resources Are unlimited okay they're infinite in every way and what that means is um, if he gives something away he doesn't then have less to give okay so if God loves you it doesn't mean he has less love for me if God empowers you it doesn't mean that he has less empowering available for me it's infinite it's not a zero-sum game he can't have less okay infinite glorious resources Now, let's pretend for a second. Um, Let's pretend that you had unlimited money, all right? Sounds like fun, right? Infinite, infinite, you can't run out. You just can't run out. It's infinite, all right? Now, I want to be very clear before I say this. This text is not about money at all. Money has nothing to do with it, but what I'm trying to do is think of a resource that we can get our heads around pretty easily, and we're pretty attuned to the idea of money, okay? Okay? So this text isn't about that. And I, by the way, I think if Jesus listed if the uh, glorious unlimited resources, I'm not sure American currency would even make the list. He'd be like, oh yeah, I got all that too. But it's not even the point. It's not the point. But we can, we can get our heads around this. okay? So you have infinite money. No limits at all. Here's the question. I want you to think about it, really. How generous would you be? How generous would you be? Again, those resources are infinite, meaning... If you give some away, you don't have less. It costs you nothing. How generous would you be? Now that, of course, is a ridiculous premise. Let's make it even more ridiculous and add a couple more layers. Not only do you have unlimited resources, but let's pretend that you are all knowing and you are all loving which isn't too much of a stretch. You're you're, you're very intelligent and loving people, but we're cranking it all to infinity here. You know everything. You love perfectly. Think about it. The only reason you would ever say no to anyone, if you're all-knowing, all-loving, and infinitely resourced, the only reason you would ever say no to anyone is if saying yes would somehow be unloving do you think that's right? If in your infinite knowledge you understood that giving whatever people asked of you actually wasn't going to be in their best interest, that's the only reason you'd ever say no. I think you probably know where I'm going with this. That's the generosity of God for us. That far-fetched, ridiculous scenario is the reality of our God. He has infinite resources. He is absolutely loving. He is all-knowing. If he says no, it's only because he is saying yes to something better. And the Bible goes out of its way to make sure we can understand this, that we can accept how far-reaching this is, how generous God is. And it has to go out of its way because it's it's hard for us to accept that God would be that loving, that generous. Because he doesn't always do what we want him to do. Because in the previous scenario, where you have all the everything and all it's all yours, um, well, then you would give you everything that you asked for, okay? But clearly, God knows better. Jesus said it like this. This is Luke chapter 11. It's a very important text. And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, you will find. Keep on Knocking, the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, to verse 11. It's interesting, he just goes right into this idea. They're connected. Right into this idea, Jesus says, You, fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask you for an egg do they give you a scorpion? Every time I read this, I just think, I wish I still lived in a world where that's what my kids would be asking me for. I'd be like, yeah, I got an egg. And, you know, I can't actually give them the stuff they want anyway. But sort of a simple reality, if the Lord says, hey, can I, can I have something good? Are you going to give them something awful? That's what he's saying. He goes, of course not. So, verse 13, if you sinful people if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give, interesting, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That seems like a clutchless shift. shift. Now we're talking about the Holy Spirit? That is by design. This is really simple logic. Jesus is saying, guys, I am like the absolute best of all time at giving good gifts. I'm the goat. I'm the best there's ever been. He's saying the ultimate gift whether you accept this reality or not, the ultimate gift that I have for you is the Holy Spirit. And I cannot wait to give it to people who ask for it and keep asking for it because it's good. And I love to give good gifts. It is no coincidence again that Jesus highlights the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, it's always a good gift. Always a good gift. But, it's not, I don't think, always our perspective. So let's just, let's just get real for a minute, okay? Let's let's do it. Honestly, I don't know if more Christians, if a greater chunk of Christians, are drawn to the Holy Spirit, or if it's a greater proportion of them that are just flat out afraid of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. And look, here's the thing. I'll be clear. I get it. I get it. I get why anyone, sincere, intelligent people, can be afraid of the Holy Spirit. And I acknowledge that for those who are afraid of the Holy Spirit, in whatever measure, is that they feel that way often for a stack of good reasons. I want to acknowledge that. Let's talk about it. The Holy Spirit is God, period. Okay, the Bible's very clear about that. But we often don't, by default, I think, tend to think of Him in that way as God. We we can, um, you know, we can try to personalize and 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 even picture God the Father or God the Son. Not so much with God the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. It means wind or breath. There's something even in that word that's being communicated. There's something about wind or breath that we realize can't really be seen. It's hard to comprehend where it is and in what measure. We can see the effects of it. We can't necessarily see it. There's something about it that can't be contained or entirely understood or predicted. It's wispy. It's wispy. So here's what I'm saying. Beginning even with His name, we are being signaled. There is something unpredictable. There is something mysterious about the Holy Spirit. Something that cannot be contained. Something that cannot be fully defined. So let's just be real. That alone is scary. Mystery is scary. Unpredictability is scary. From the beginning, by God's design, that's Baked into the story. Jesus told his disciples, uh, this was after his death and resurrection, and right before Jesus returned to heaven, he told his disciples to go back to Jerusalem and to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's an interesting thing about that. He didn't tell them what that meant. I think that's significant. Go Go seek this thing. And he didn't tell them what it meant. He didn't tell them what would happen he didn't tell them what to expect. He didn't tell them how they would know. He just said, go do it. I, can, I sometimes really wonder what the disciples were expecting when they went to the upper room to seek the Holy Spirit. I want to know what they were expecting just so I can laugh about how wrong they were. I don't know what they were expecting, but for sure, no one predicted what actually happened. There was not a single person who was like, yep, yeah, that's what I saw coming. I knew it. No, they did not. They had no idea. If you don't know the story, I'll tell it to you real quick. It's Acts chapter two. The Bible says that there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the place that they were in. And then they all started, here we go, speaking in different languages. No one had that on the bingo card. No one who was like, yep, no. They started speaking in different languages, presumably languages they didn't know. So it wasn't gibberish but to them it probably was and then they started acting strange what do you mean they started i actually i don't even know doesn't really say exactly the way in which they acting strange but i know that because people all around them thought that they were drunk all right so if people are around going they're drunk something weird's happening all right Uh, if you're familiar with the story then we know that from the apostle peter he got up and said hey we're not drunk as you suppose." Uh, but we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, we're not drunk, seeing as it is about the third hour, which is seeing as it's just nine o'clock in the morning. He's like, guys, we're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. Now, I know some of you are like, I know people who get drunk at 9 a.m. There are some people who are like, UT's got an early kickoff on the West Coast. Got to be drunk by nine. Challenge accepted. Go Vols. I know that's a thing. But generally speaking, people aren't drunk at 9 a.m. That's what he's saying. He's like, no, it's not. I know it looks like that. It's not like that. So something was going on. Some stuff was happening. And then it was always like that. When you see in the book of Acts, like different things appear to be happening, but something observable seems to be happening. All throughout the New Testament, throughout church history, the Holy Spirit comes and and stuff happens. So anyway, now when we seek the Holy Spirit, we still don't know what the Lord will do. But we do know that all of that stuff is at least in the range of possible outcomes And I don't mind telling you that that doesn't make it any less scary, does it? It does not. And then to complicate it more, throughout church history, and this part is just raunchy and despicable, but it's real. Throughout church history, people have tried to use the promise of God's spirit, the promise of his power to control people, to manipulate people, to extort particularly the vulnerable, and that's disgusting. And any decent human being, which I assume is all of you, we don't want any part of that. So now it's just weirder. now it's even scarier. And then, in 1611, a horrible crime was committed. At least in my, in my mind, it was a horrible crime. It was a crime against language. Here's what happened. The translators of the King James Version, in 1611 decided to take the beautiful word numa and translate it in their infinite wisdom as ghost ghost that's one of our names for God who is love the holy ghost as in an apparition as in paranormal activity as in Lurking and looming and haunting and jump scares and whoo, ghost. They called it the Holy Ghost. Are you kidding me? So, yeah, it's a little scary. It is. I acknowledge it. And my aim for this series, and be very clear, is not to try to manipulate or force anything out. I have no outcomes in mind. My aim in this series is for us as a church to seek whatever the Holy Spirit has for us. So let's just lay it all out on the table and be honest. Those things that I listed and there are others. Those are pretty good reasons to be nervous. It's not insane for a sincere Christian to kind of take stock of that whole thing and just go, nope, now I'm out. I'm good. I'm out. I love Jesus, my whole heart. I'll do what he says. But that whole thing, nope. I get it. People opt out. But Here's the thing. While we're being honest, let's also ask this. If you're opting out, you're opting out at what cost? At at what cost? Or we've been talking about is the trinity and the trinity is really hard to understand Um, there's something mysterious about it that we we don't really have categories for it because we don't because we we live in a limited physical world Um, but what the bible teaches is that we have one god god the father god the son god the holy spirit one god existing in three persons you might say well that doesn't entirely add up it's like i know it's a transcendent reality God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God existing in three persons. Historically, uh, the church has used a triangle to help understand that, okay? An equilateral triangle. Now, if some of you are looking very closely, if i hold it still for a minute, you'll realize that this is actually not an equilateral triangle. I just want you to know that I'm not making some theological statement about the co-equality of the persons in the Trinity, what actually happened is I made this on a whim in my shop yesterday and it didn't come out quite right. So if we can just pretend that this is actually an equilateral triangle, okay, that's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're doing here today. You see, it's not, eh, anyway, <clears throat> some of you are like, I know what he did wrong. Listen, I don't want to know. Don't, I just, I love you. I don't care. I think I know too. It doesn't matter. Um, I didn't care enough to do it again. That's just the truth. I was like, yep, good enough. Okay, anyway. People often think of it in terms of a trinity. And so we can go, okay, it's easy enough to see. This is one triangle. I want to hold it the way that's least janky looking. Yeah, this is one triangle. One triangle, we have one God, but we can see, okay, there are three points. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's a supernatural thing. It's transcendent. Eventually, this illustration breaks down. I acknowledge that. But this is a helpful way to think of it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. Throughout human history, with God's direct dealings with men, at different times in history, different parts of the Trinity take the lead. It's a big day, who knows, Ooh. just kidding, that's just a weird thing to happen. Different, something's over there, I'm just kidding. Uh, everybody run to that side of the, no, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> the people online are like, what, I didn't get it, you gotta be more spiritual. Uh, the lights flickered, okay. <clears throat> At different parts in history, different points of the triangle have taken the lead in god's dealings with man so the way i think of this is not just as a triangle but i also like to think of it as like an arrow or or like a spear and it's the tip of the spear okay so for example throughout the old testament most of the time when people encounter they have a direct encounter with god god touches man heaven touches earth most of the time, and not always, I'm sort of broad-stroking it here, but generally speaking, in the Old Testament, it's God the Father that they're encountering. Okay? So at that point in history, and again, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're totally involved. In fact, at the very beginning of the creation narrative, it's made clear, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all there, co-eternal, co-equal, they're all there. But it's God the Father who's speaking the world into existence. He's the tip of the spear. He's the touch point between God and man. Okay? And this remains true throughout the Old Testament. And then we move into the New Testament and into the Gospels. And what happens? Jesus, the Son of God, is incarnate. He lives with us. And so at that point, the triangle turns. And Jesus becomes the tip of the spear. Jesus becomes the primary touch point between God and man. If we interact with God, it is through Jesus, the Son. And then Jesus, throughout his ministry, That's the reality, his teaching, that's the reality. We're still gleaning from those teachings today. Thank God for them. Then he dies, he raises from the grave, he ascends to the throne, and he tells his disciples, as we said earlier, to go and seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Seek what I have for you through the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, we just read about it. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind. And then what happened is the triangle turns again And ever since then, now in what's called the church age, ever since then, the tip of the spear, the primary touch point between God and man is the Holy Spirit. God the Father's involved, God the Son's involved. Of course, it's one God. But the touch point between you and God is the Holy Spirit of God. So when we're talking about, well, maybe I'll just love Jesus and opt out of all the Holy Spirit stuff, what we're talking about is opting out of the most prominent touch point between God and man. We're saying, I'm going to move away from the way in which God in this season has chosen to primarily move in our lives. I would say that's significant. Once again, Jesus said it like this, Verse 11, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we trust a good father to give good gifts to his children and not something harmful instead, then come on, how much more can we trust God to do the same? and more so and better. To give us the Holy Spirit and for it to be good. A lot of work is done to try to define or explain the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that isn't helpful, but in the end, here's what we can say. It is good. So now what we're doing is we're pressing into actually what's, what's really tough about this. Here's the hard part. Here's what's really tough. is This requires Trust. That's where we're at, trust. And, and trust, trust is hard. Like, it's really hard, guys. You want to talk about scary, guys? Trust is scary. I'm not the least bit afraid of speaking in tongues or a ghost. But trust, that's terrifying. You've been around for one minute. You've put your trust in something and gotten bit, right? Got your teeth kicked in because you trusted in a thing. Trust is a good way to get yourself hurt. Trust is a good way to be made a fool out of. And trust, we're completely lost without it. We, we can't be humans in this world without it. And we certainly cannot relate to God with anything that's real without choosing to trust Him. And trying to trust God without what we were talking about last week and again today, without a full-on miraculous experience of God's love, without that, without that assurance, without being deeply rooted and grounded in his love, I'm not sure that really trusting him is even possible. And yet that's, that's what Jesus asked his disciples to do, to trust him. Guys, go seek the Holy Spirit. Well, what what is it? It's a gift. Yeah, okay. What what kind of gift? It's a gift from me. So it's good. Period. It's good. What else can you? Nope. That's all you get. It's good. John 14 and John 16, Jesus explained to those same disciples that after he returned to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 2 and continuing ever since. And then he insisted that the gift of his Holy Spirit would be better than having him with them in person. He said that. I think it's one of those, I think there's quite a few of those moments where the disciples heard Jesus said something and they're like, yeah, he's the son of God, but I don't believe that. That's not true. We're not better off without Jesus right here with us. It's so of the thing explains, it's a parable, who knows what he means, but we're better with him here. But he meant it. You're better off with the spirit within you, leading you and empowering you than Christ in the flesh standing next to you. He said that the Holy Spirit would teach them everything that they needed to know. He said that by His Spirit, this is bonkers, by His Spirit they would do even greater works than He had done. And by the way, this is one of those churches where we believe every single thing that Jesus said is true. That's true. Does that explode your categories? Okay, it's true. That's really amazing promises. Let's also acknowledge, he left a gap. He left a lot of questions. what, What exactly does that do? And how exactly does this all work? And what exactly can we expect? And Jesus, rather than filling in that gap for them, simply insisted that they fill the gap with trust in him. He left it intentionally vague. He said, seek the Holy Spirit. You can trust that it's good. Because I'm good. The Lord would say the same to you now. He would say, look, I, I know you. I love you. I know exactly what you need. I know the plan. And so you can trust that I'm going to give you something good and not something bad. Even if it brings up concerns and uncertainty within you. And that brings us right back to Ephesians 3, verse 17 now. Then Christ will make his home in our hearts as you trust in Him. And what comes out of that? Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. As you trust in Him. We have agency in this. You have a part to play in this. It's not just, well, the Holy Spirit didn't do a thing, so I guess He didn't want to do a thing. No, we have a part to play. And it's trusting Him and seeking whatever He has for us. There's something in this text, verse 17, that I think, by the way, is sequential. It's not quite neat and tidy, but I do think there's something sequential about this. We we understand and accept God's love and even gives us the capacity to do that as we trust in Him. In other words... We love God enough to start to trust Him in whatever measure we do. And as we do, God does what He does. He is faithful. He proves Himself reliable. He never fails us. And then we discover that we can trust Him in even greater measure, and even greater measure, and even greater measure. And then we can decide sincerely, no matter what God has for me, it's good. Period. I can trust Him to give good gifts. What that means is we can take this command to seek the Spirit, the command to desire spiritual gifts and all that the Holy Spirit has for us and we can trust it. Listen, I want to be very clear. There's no part of me right now that is trying to remove the mystery from this. The mystery is part of God's design. I want you to seek the Holy Spirit, whatever He has for you. Just as Jesus has taught us to do. I think it's vital that we do it. Be very clear. I cannot tell you exactly what the Lord has for you if you seek his spirit in full measure. I can't I I can't tell you. If I did, I'd know. But if I tried to tell you, you should walk out, because there's no way I can know. I don't know. But I can tell you this. right? Look at me. It's not a scorpion. It's not a snake. It is something good. It's a good gift from a good and loving father. Okay. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. And uh these are these are stories uh that if you've been around the vineyard for any real, you know, for any time at all, you already know these stories. But these stories are so significant and so formative to me that they just, they just come with, it's just a package deal. It just comes with the church. You get to hear these stories. Um, uh, the first was uh, a number of years ago, quite a few, and I was just, I was in a bad spot. I was overwhelmed. I was just not doing well in all the ways. I was exhausted. I was struggling. It was just it was a bad spot. Worst moment, sort of season in my life, by far. And I'm right in the middle of that, and I'm in a worship gathering in this room, and the Lord gives me, for the first time in my life, it's the first time this has ever had happened to me, I had an open vision. I had an open vision, and what I saw, as if watching a screen before me, what I saw was me out in a sailboat on open waters, and the sail on my sailboat was down, put away. And and the first thing I thought of as I I saw it it was like, oh, that's so foolish. Like, I don't know anything about sailboats, but I know you need to sail the sail. Like, that's how they go. Why is the sail down? And then I looked and saw that there I was on the side in the back of this little dinky little sailboat. I'm reaching over. It would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. I was reaching over the side frantically trying to paddle with my hands to somehow move the boat forward in a way that it wasn't designed to move. And the Lord spoke to me, clears a bell, said, Aaron, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's from John chapter 15. You can't do anything on your own, Aaron, without me. And then in that moment, I was aware of hundreds, it was probably, honestly, thousands. I was just, it was like this download. I was suddenly aware of all the ways, and I'm sad to admit that there were lots and lots of ways Ways in which I was not putting my trust in God at all. I was putting my trust in me. I saw myself as a solution to the problem. I had a a whole bunch of swirling problems, and again and again and again, rather than looking to Jesus, no matter how religious or spiritual I was, whether I was aware of it or not, and I really wasn't, I was looking to myself for the answer, and in all these hosts of problems, I was thinking, if I will think harder and I will work harder, I can fix it. I, 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 I. Frantically trying to move something forward that's not designed to move that way. And the Lord said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that vision changed my life. It was years ago. I think it's true that I've reflected on that vision every single day since. I don't think a day has passed. I haven't spent time reflecting on that. And from that I I learned something entirely new. That was the day I went from rowing to sailing. Day that I realized that if I'm going to move forward in any way, it's going to be because I am reliant upon the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, Numa, breath of God, to propel me forward if I'm going to do anything of value. And so the Lord began to root out and it's still there, but began to root out more and more of my own selfish pride and looking to myself for the answers he made it clear and that's when my it shifted. Every day I got to keep my sail up. I got to walk with Jesus. I got to keep in step with the spirit. I got to keep my sails up. It changed my life. Now, second story and uh, musicians can come up some theoretically it's the last thing I'll say. The second story was years after that. I was at uh it was a prayer thing and I was spending the day in prayer and I was doing what I do every day. I was I was meditating on that picture. I was picturing the sailboat with the sail down and saying, "Lord, today, like every day, please help me keep my sail up. My focus on You, not try to do this on my own, to rely on You, to trust in You. Whatever You have is good. Wherever the wind blows, that's where I want to go. If the wind blows fast, I'll go fast. If it goes slow, I'll go slow. If it's still, I'll be still. Just Holy Spirit, come fill my sails and do what You see fit." And I, this was years after, and every day I think I had pictured that scenario for you know. Who knows how many hundreds of hours I'd spent just thinking about that reality. And the Lord spoke to me. I can't believe I'd never thought of this before. It never crossed my mind before. But the Lord said, Aaron, why are you the only one in the boat? Why is there only one sail? And where are the other boats? And then I had a second open vision it was of a massive vessel. So many sails, this huge ship, so many sails, the wind blowing and a propelling forward in unison and these other boats and sails around it. And that was it. I'm only, I still haven't sorted through all that the Lord might want to say to me through that, but parts of it have been clear. And the part that was clear to me right away was again, my own stubborn pride getting in the way. And here's what happened. I began to put my hope in me keeping my sail up. I still made it about me. And here's what was in my mind. I didn't even realize it, but that day the Lord showed it to me. In my mind, if we're going to do well as a church, here's what happens. Aaron's little boat has got to put up its little sail and then it's going to be a tugboat to pull this giant vessel along. And that's what the Lord revealed to me. Aaron, you can keep your little sail up all you want. But if this church is to do what God has in store for us, and I believe it's, guys, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I just think it's so much that he has for us. Something beautiful. Something healing. Something redemptive. Something beautiful. And if we are to do what God has in store for us, it will not be because I keep up my sales. It will not be because the staff at our church keeps up their sails. It will because, be because we as a family choose in unity to trust in the Lord. And together we put up all of our sails. Together we say whatever the Lord has for us. I don't know where the wind is going to take us. It's not for me to know. I'm going to put up my sail and trust that wherever the Lord will lead me, it's good. I can't do it. Staff can't do it. Small group leaders and others, collectively, as a family, we put up our sails. We trust the Holy Spirit and Him alone to carry us forward, and we go wherever He sends us. door for this church, I know, but it relies upon us doing this. And in Acts chapter 2, it says that they were there in one mind and one accord. In other words, they were unified. You know what happened? A bunch of people got in a room, and they put their sails up, and they kept their sails up until the wind blew, and then they turned the world upside down with the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to be in one mind, one accord, together. Not knowing the outcomes, trusting God enough to say wherever he leads us, so be it. He's not giving me a scorpion, it's not a snake. I'm going to put up our sails and go wherever he leads us.